0: We've been in the book of Colossians, and as we thought about this, this theme that we've been carrying through the book of Colossians, it's that Christ is at the center of, of these various um, elements of our lives, and, and really of everything, as we just sang about. And uh, we're going to get to a place coming up in Colossians where it says, Christ um, is all and is in all. And, and it's just this idea that Christ is right in the middle. But when you get something like thoughts involved in that, you go, yeah, that's tangible. I can get my mind around that. How, how can I make it look like, like my thoughts revolve around Christ? And that's what we want to look at this morning. And it's a bit of a challenge because thoughts are, are kind of a funny thing as we'll, as we'll dive into and discover this morning. I think this is going to be a really practical message. I pray that it is. Um, But if you're like me, uh, thoughts can be a really slippery, tricky kind of a thing. And even on, on Sunday morning in church, for a window of time, it can be very challenging for me to direct my thoughts and to set my thoughts anywhere and to keep them someplace, uh, for long. And, uh, and so, and so we're gonna, we're gonna dive into this. If we've, if you've been here with us through the letter, and if you were to just sit down today and read the whole book of Colossians, uh, a, it's it's a, it's a relatively small letter, and uh, and you would recognize a little shift in in tone right here. Uh, I've called this message this morning Christ's center of our thoughts. And um, I got to thinking about it, and really we could have a, a different title that would be a lot longer, but it would be how to have your head in the clouds without being a slacker or a pilot. Um, because really if someone says that your head is in the clouds, it's usually meant as a negative, isn't it? It's like you're not finishing your homework. You're not staying on task. You're not doing this. You're not doing that. And, um, and having your head in the clouds can be kind of a, a a negative kind of a connotation to it. And yet, in essence, that's what we're called to in this passage. We're called to lift our gaze. We're called to have our thoughts, uh, in the clouds, so to speak. And we're gonna, we're gonna dive into that. Paul had kind of a pattern to, to letter writing, and I don't know how many letters you write, but you probably have a little bit of a pattern to your emails if you think about it. And here was Paul's pattern. It was essentially this: personal greeting. Uh, then you'd dive into the section of theology, its principles, its, its truths. And he would dive into these things, and some of them are pretty heady. And then he would he would shift in the letter and he would begin to move on to practical tips for living out what he just taught you in the theology. And then at the end there's always some kind of a, a personal comments, you know, that you'll do. And if you read some of the letters of Paul, what you find is a little bit of a déjà vu going on. You're like, "Man, this sounds really familiar." And the reason is is because there's a pattern. Well, here's where chapter 3 settles on. Chapter 3 really centers, it turns a corner in the letter. And he didn't write it with chapters and verses, but, but as we've broken up our modern day translations of scripture, if you look at the end of chapter two and move into chapter three, we're really moving to the practical tips for living out the realities that he's been speaking of in chapter two. But, Paul being who he is, a competitive guy, a pretty driven kind of a guy, a pretty on task kind of a guy, and a very confrontational kind of a guy, he is not done slamming the Gnostics yet. Uh, the Gnostics, mind you, are this philosophy. It's a it's a man-made religion, in essence. And uh, Paul, in this letter, is really kind of slamming them. He's, he's exposing them for what they are, and that is a lie. The Gnostics, in essence, downplayed the importance of Jesus. And isn't that just like religion, to just twist it a little bit? They didn't throw Jesus out altogether, or else that might have caused a riot. Rather, they took it and just altered it a little bit. Just, just had some subtle nuance changes. I want you to do something right now. I want you to take your pen or pencil and write out the word Christian on your paper somewhere. Just, just write the word Christian on your notes. And, um, and then I want you to, to take and um, either erase or scribble out the word Christ. Let's do that for, for me for a second. Scribble out or erase the word Christ from the word Christian. What do you have left? I am. Yeah. I, I, Ian, you know, a name maybe. Ian, uh, you don't have much, right? It's a little bit nonsensical. Uh, the word Christian makes about this much sense without the word Christ in it, right? It's hard to even say. You know, I'm an Ian, what? I thought your name was Dave. You know, it, just, it, it, just, it loses everything without Christ. In essence, that's Paul's point. He says the Christian life does not work without Christ. At the very center of everything. And look at where he starts with practical tips. He starts in the mind. He starts with your thoughts. Because the way we think changes the way we have our attitudes. The way that we think changes our behavior. The way that we think really changes our lives. So he begins... In the mind. I want you to look at your paper, and, and if you if you have your Bible open, that would probably be even better because we're going to look back at Colossians 2 a little bit as well. But in Colossians 3, 1 to 4, as Trisha just read, um, just you can circle these, you can underline them, or you can just observe them. But just notice this. How many times in these four verses the word Christ comes up? Verse 1, with Christ. Verse 1, where Christ is. Verse 3, with Christ. Verse 4, when Christ. Do you see this? It's, it's huge. It's jumping off the page at you that Christ is a big point of this. And that's Paul. The Christian life doesn't work without Christ at the very heart of, of, your, of your life and what you're talking about. Paul is stressing the total sufficiency of Christ. He says in chapter 2, verse 10, that you have been given fullness in Christ. And church, it's very important that you don't let anyone intimidate you or deceive you into believing that you need anything besides Christ to live a godly and holy life. That's imperative. We have some community groups that meet and they meet faithfully. And some weeks are really poignant and powerful and some just feel like, yeah, I could have taken it or leaving it or left it, I suppose. This last week was really powerful we prayed for each other and there were some real needs that were just right on the surface and, and there were tears that were shed and, and, and we, we recognized this Thursday, gosh, we really need this. But there's a danger in thinking that I need my community group or else I won't make it in the Christian life. I need this mentor in my life or else how could I possibly get through this life? I need to read the Bible, but I've also got to listen to this podcast because they're the ones that really feed me. I love this one author and all their studies just help me. And so really I need Christ, but I I don't understand the scriptures or the Christian life without this author in my life. Oh, I need this church. Now, Now, mind you, you know me. I'm all about community and the fact that we do need each other. But there's a fine line and there's a real danger if we think that we don't have fullness in Christ. Because pretty soon it becomes, I need Christ plus something else. And we begin to lift this something else to to a place really of an idol. Or of replacing where only God should be in our lives. So that's Paul. He just wants to stress that and drive that home to you. Here's what I want to do for you this morning. I want to give you three statements that I hope as as we talk about setting our minds on things above... I want to give you three really practical sentences that you can use this week to do that. Some of you haven't memorized books of the Bible. Let's be honest. Most of us in this room have never memorized books of the Bible. Glenn's not here. If Glenn Miller were here, we could maybe include him. But I want to give you three sentences that you can allow your brain to chew on. Allow these truths to, to mull over in your head. Allow them to be meditated on and they're found right in these, in these verses and they're easy and you can write them down and you can put them by, uh, your, your, your nightstand this evening. Here's the first one. I have risen from the dead with Christ. I have risen from the dead with Christ. Now, the very first thought that jumped out to me uh, as I read this passage is Christian baptism. Paul is absolutely alluding to the image of baptism. In baptism, for those of you who don't know, we have a super secret baptism right behind me, and it's, uh, it's in that little square window, and there's, there's water in there when we baptize someone. And it's a picture of going under the water. And as the water closes in around you, that's death. You're dying with Christ. In chapter 2, listen to this. Chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says this, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I'm sorry, that's in Galatians. Um, in, in Colossians, he references dying with Christ and now here in chapter 3, he references being raised up with Christ. Now, yesterday, um, I was over at the beach. And uh, lest you think I was there being a slacker uh, or or something else, we were there for a, a very specific purpose. Um, we have a guy in our college group at Valley Church, and he wanted to get baptized. And he really wanted to get baptized um, outdoors. And so this is us yesterday. We're at Twin Lakes Beach, and, um, right around four o'clock in the afternoon, with a lot of people around, um, we just brought some church to the beach and had a little service going on. And, um, and it was so cool to sit there and read scripture. And, uh, and the, 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 the picture of baptism was brought up. That, that you're, you're dead and you're buried with Christ. But three days later, Christ rose from the grave and there's an empty tomb. And because of that, we're able to raise to newness of life, and so here's Jesse getting baptized right off the beach, and um, he's just coming up out of the water in this shot, and uh, one of the coolest baptisms ever because one of the guys baptizing saw the wave and then body surfed it in, and I thought, man, that that's really the best of both worlds. You know, you get to do something amazing and then and then do something else amazing. But you guys, what an awesome picture it was. It was just a beautiful day. And then we just came back to the beach and we just sang worship songs. And there's something about singing. We sang your love, O Lord, and your justice flows like the ocean's tide. And it's right there. And it was so powerful. Well, that's the imagery that Paul is drawing on in this passage. I just started to read this, but Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. Romans 6.3 says this, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? That's part of it. And we were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have new life. What a worthwhile sentence to mull on. I have risen from the dead with Christ. Now this must be what we all long for, isn't it? A new life. Renewal. What, what What else would describe the way that people change jobs? The way that people sometimes change spouses? The way that people move? The way that we even buy stuff sometimes, I think sometimes we're buying something to get something new to go, maybe a new car is what I need. Maybe just some new clothes will will kind of help me feel different. Maybe I'll have some renewal if I get this new thing. Maybe that's the boom in plastic surgery. I don't know. But we want this newness. We want renewal. We want change. But here's the point that Paul's making is that The answer is not manufactured by changes that we can do. We can manufacture external changes, can't we? We can drum up new things. We can move to a new city. We can have a fresh start. We can celebrate New Year's Day. But does that ever produce lasting change, the kind we want in the depths of our soul? I think not. The answer is found in Christ. Listen to Colossians 2.20. You died with Christ to the basic principles of this world. Now, you ask any logical thinking person, do you think a new car is really going to help your family life? Do you think it's really going to get a hold of that temptation that's been eating at you for the last 20 years? Do you think it's really going to make you a better person? Despite everything that Madison Avenue throws at us with car ads, most of us would in our logical moment, say, no, not at all. But if you were to ask a second question that said, do you feel, though, like you, you almost are trying for that when you do that? The answer would probably be, yeah, I sort of do. I fall into that. I do. I fall into just thinking, oh, this one new thing. This is the, this is the book. This really helped my friend. This is the book I need to read. And just it, it'll all change. It'll all be better. Man, that was a great sermon. That, that one principle, if I can just master that principle, boy, I would just nail it. But do you ever master enough principles? And do you ever stay consistent with those principles? Our thoughts are lofty, but they're brought back to earth. It's like our thoughts are affected by gravity somehow. Make no mistake about it, that as a Christian in Christ, you have risen from the dead. Think about that. That's why Christians come off as ludicrous when you try to share your faith because you're as pumped up about it. And I love brand new believers because they just... It hasn't, it hasn't gotten stale to them. I'm alive. I mean, I rose from the dead. Do you hear what I'm saying? And people are like, man, I don't want to hear your religion. What are you talking about? But they won't shut up about it because it's so astounding. No, 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 you don't get it. I was dead, but now I'm alive. Do you hear what I'm saying? And it's this really, really powerful truth. Here's the main thing I want you to get about this point, though, is that it's past tense. Some of your Bibles, NAS translates... This is this way. If then you have been raised up with Christ. But the if is better translated since. It's a past tense kind of a deal. In other words, it's this. It's not if, like, gee, this is in doubt. It's because. Because you have been raised up with Christ, and then everything that follows hinges on the fact that it's a done deal. There's no doubt about it. It's over. You are already a citizen of eternity of heaven right now since you have been raised up with Christ. Here's the implication for that Monday morning. Here's why that's a big deal to you, whether you know it or not. Let the starting point of the fact that I have been raised up with Christ, let that be the starting point as you enter into a battle with sin. Every single one of you are going to face frustrations and temptations and the world, the flesh, and the and the devil starting in about five minutes, right? It's there. It's ever-present. But let the starting point of the battle be the fact that I'm raised from the dead. I'm already a citizen of heaven and not the end result. If you put it at the end result, then that means you're fighting the battle with sin to get this end result of holiness. You're fighting the battle of sin so that you can make it to heaven. That's a losing battle, isn't it? And Paul wants to make it really clear. The starting point in the battle for sin with you and I is the reality that we're alive. Is the reality that we have everything we need in Christ. Alright, because of the empty tomb, we have a new status as a believer, but it also leads us to a brand new orientation. Here's the second sentence I want you to write down. I point my heart and mind upward at Christ. Who does it? I do. You do. Can anyone take your thoughts and point them in a direction? They can start to steer it. I'm trying to steer your thoughts to a point this morning. I've worked really hard to try and do that. I don't know how successful it's happening right now. You might be thinking about lunch, about Mother's Day, about can't wait for football in the fall. I don't know what you're thinking about. But I can't change your thoughts, can I? And there's a responsibility element to this. Three one says, set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things above, not on earthly things. Notice there's a God part to this. You were raised from the dead. You can't do that. God can. That's God's part. And there's an our part to this. Set your hearts. Set your minds. And just like the Christian walk, it's like two pedals of a bike. There's a God part and there's an our part. If we ever start to try to raise ourselves from the dead and ask God to just through osmosis set our thoughts, it doesn't work. That's not the way God drew it up. God drew it up with His part in place. Let that happen with Him. And He drew up it with our, our part in place and lets us get busy doing that. Now, there's both a negative and a positive command here. Here's the positive. Set your heart. Some of your translations read, keep seeking the things above. NIV translates it, set your hearts on things above. The second positive command is set your minds on things above. The negative statement is this, not on earthly things. So a positive statement and a negative statement, both of them are commands. The the nature of the way the language is written is that it's active. It's not something that you do once, but it's ongoing. So you set your heart on things above and you keep on setting your heart on things above. Isn't that true? I've set my heart on things above in the middle of a worship service or right in the middle of some preaching and go, man, I am never going to struggle with this again. This is crystal clear. How could I ever have fallen for this? It's done. And Wednesday, it doesn't seem as clear anymore. And by Friday, I'm worn out from the battle. You have to keep setting your heart. You have to keep setting your mind. You have to keep not setting your mind on things below. I'll just confess to you right now, I don't naturally think heavenly thoughts. I don't. And neither do you. We struggle with the flesh, don't we? Don't you wish it were just easy and natural that you just always... Man, the first thing out of your mind was heavenly. And people go, wow, everything you say is heavenly. And your immediate thought to that is, praise God for that. Not, oh, huh, I'm pretty sweet. But we don't. We struggle with that. I want you to look at this verse on the screen. Don't turn there. Just look, read it with me or just, just look at it. Second Corinthians 10, starting in verse 3. Listen to this. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. How many have heard the passage at the end where it says, take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ? Raise your hand if you've heard that verse before. Okay, Now, put your hands down. I wonder how many of you who just raised your hands recognize or realize or remembered that that verse was put right in the midst of a warfare kind of a context. Paul's writing this and he's speaking about warfare and the battle that ensues for our mind. And he puts it right in there. Now he echoes some similar things in Colossians. Look at this. There's the tension of living in the world but being different. Right? There's talk of demolishing false knowledge. You know what that is? That's the Gnostics. That's religion. That's what Paul's doing here. He's blowing their base principles out of the water with this letter. Without directly attacking them, he's pointing to the truth, which blows their arguments out of the water. He's demolishing strongholds. And finally, he says, take captive. Make it obedient. Doesn't that sound like a struggle? It sounds like there's some effort involved in that on our part. Take captive. You ever try to catch something? That takes effort. Make it obedient. You just try to make your kids obedient. Try that one on for size. There's effort. It's ongoing. You don't just write a little note and it happens. It's the same way with our minds. It's the same exact way. I had an email sent to me uh, last week. And, um, and I read the email. I have a lot of emails sent to me in, in any given week. But I read this email, and my absolute first response to this email was fleshly. I read it, and I wanted to respond right away with, uh, with all kinds of things. And right away, I had this sense that I needed to check in with Jesus before I wrote any kind of response. I don't do that with every email that I ever get. Sometimes I just shoot them off. It's no big deal. But this one in particular, I knew I needed to talk to the Lord about. So you know what I did? I went, uh, I I saved it. I held off responding. uh, One bike ride and some time later, I came back with a different response than I would have typed right away. Had I typed it right away, it would have served me. I guarantee you that. And I'm, I can be decent with words sometimes, and I can be jarring with words sometimes, but you know what I would have been doing? I would have been building up the kingdom of Dave. And the Holy Spirit just promptly said, you aren't going to respond to that right now. We need to chat. So that's what I did. Here's what happens. Earthly response, earthly thoughts, produce all kinds of junk. It would have produced justification on my part. It would have produced, I was a little bit hurt, so it would have produced hurting back, lashing back. I might have even couched it with really spiritual sounding phrases and words, but it would have served me. I'll tell you what happened. It was filtered through heavenly thoughts. And what was produced was good. It was a good response. I felt really good about it. I still feel good about it today. And I wouldn't have felt good about my initial response. That's how this fleshes out in real life. Now, lest you think, wow, Dave, you've got it all together. I'll tell you what prompted that email in the first place was probably some, uh, some, some things that came out of my mouth that weren't heavenly and start helped causing that problem, start helped causing that email that was sent to me. But that's the way that it fleshes out in real life. <clears throat> um, I used to read this, this command. Back to these commands. I used to read this section. I've been a Christian for a long time now. And I used to read this passage and here's what would come to my mind. I would tend to think about it this way. I would tend to think about it from a sense of duty. It would read It would read like this. I must focus on God and not on all this really cool stuff of the world. Not on this temptation over here that seems really appealing. Not on that over there. Not, and certainly not on that. I must do this. And here's what it was reminiscent of. It was reminiscent of a disciple in a garden trying to stay awake and pray with the Lord with super, super willing spirits, but super, super weak flesh. And I struggled with it. And I felt like this was a duty that I kept letting the Lord down with. And I'd say, God, I'm sorry. I'm trying to have good thoughts, I'm trying to do this one. But I'm starting to see things in a little bit of a different light now. There's a positive and a negative command here. For you parents, let me just throw this off you. Sometimes we give our kids more than one instruction, right? Let me just throw out this. This might be two kinds of instructions you might give to your child. You might take your kids, and if you're in a safe enough neighborhood, and if it's close enough, you might say something like this. Okay. Son, daughter. I want you to go straight to Baskin Robbins, and I want you not to lose this $5 bill. Okay? Positive command, negative command. You see it? Go straight to Baskin Robbins. Do not lose the $5 bill. Now, how ludicrous would it be if your kid goes, You're always telling me what not to do. I never get to lose the $5 bill. Gosh! And they storm off to Baskin-Robbins because they're always being told what not to do. You see how the negative command is for us in that scenario? Of course it is. Well, what if the negative commands in Scripture are for us? What if both of these are for our absolute and utter good? Doesn't that change the way that you think about looking up? To me, it it just sets my imagination on fire. What if God wants me to look up? Because that's where the absolute best is at getting the most out of this life even, is to look up and to not look on earthly things. What does a renewed imagination look like? What about for you personally? What happens when you become preoccupied with the eternal? Things that are temporal begin to take a back seat. What does it look like in your life this week to become preoccupied with the eternal? How would your job function differently? Moms, how would your chores function differently on Monday morning? How would we as a body of Christ think differently if that were the case? I think in terms of ourself, thinking heavenly thoughts about yourself is important. Find out what God thinks about you. By the way, find out is another way of saying, keep seeking, which we see in verse 1. Keep seeking. Set your direction in this way. Find out what God thinks about you. I heard someone pray this this week. It was beautiful. That we are a tapestry of grace. Don't you love that? What if I realized that God, to you, I'm this tapestry of grace. It's a little bit of grace here, a little bit of grace there, and all of these things you're knitting and working together to produce something that just pleases you. And it's a trophy of your grace, and we can hold it up and go, there's no way that guy should be blessed like that. God must be involved in that guy's life. Another image would be that God thinks of you as a welcomed-in orphan who is impoverished, But he says, come on in. Let me get you cleaned up. You have a seat at my table. You have full rights to my inheritance. Welcome to the family. Do you see how thinking heavenly thoughts, even about who you are, defines your week, defines your mood, defines your attitude? How does that change your view of other people? What if you began to view other people as tapestries of grace, as trophies of God's goodness, and looked for ways to enhance what God's already doing in their life. Moms, I don't know if you know this. Probably you do, but maybe you've forgotten. But every single time you touch your child, you smile at your child, you gently nudge your child in the right direction, you are changing the world, literally. Every time you change a diaper... You're changing the world a tiny bit at a time. Here's how I know that. You ask anyone about their mom, and they just turn to, like, putty. They either turn to putty because they think about their mom, or they turn really hard because of the mom they never had. But the toughest dude with the biggest biceps, what's he got written right here? Mom. It's the weirdest thing. So, so literally, I don't care if your child is yet to be born... Or if they're old, you are changing the world by the way that you love on your child. And do you know that that's a, a mimic of God? God's love isn't wrapped up in the dad, in the man. God's love is wrapped up in the man and the woman created together. And that's the picture of God's love. How does this change? Now, that's a sweet thought, isn't it? That's easy to think about, mom. Dear old mom, yeah, I can think about that one. How about your boss, who's just really bitter? And if you're honest, kind of a jerk. <laughs> How does it change your view of him? Let me, let me throw this out to you. A, you begin to see him as a person. You begin to see that there's this universe that, that, that exists right in his own body. And you've never you know just humanized him even, perhaps. Maybe you begin to see him as a person who's like locked in this cage of anger. And now as a person who's in a cage, you begin to take some compassion on him. You begin to realize this person is, is spiritually impoverished and it's sad and it, it breaks my heart. And man, this guy's powerless to change. Do you see how thinking earthly thoughts about him produces one result and thinking God's thought about that person produces a completely different one? It's the blind person who bumps into you. And you turn around annoyed until you see the little red-tipped cane. And all of a sudden, what happens to your heart? Compassion. Kindness. Conviction. Man, what kind of loser am I? I just jump to all kinds of conclusions. Here, let me get the door for you. just changes everything the way that you think about things. How about your money? How about your time? How about your recreation? I heard really wise counsel from someone. He's trying to to help a a, a friend get his life back in order. And he said, you need to surround yourself. You need to be around people who love innocent things. I thought, man, that's a beautiful picture of the church. That's what we ought to do is celebrate the innocent. Look at this verse, Philippians 4.8. Some of you know it. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, what? Think about such things. There it is. Why is community so important? Why is it so important that we, that we regularly gather together? Because we need stories like this lived out in front of us, don't we? We need people to come to and go, man, my thoughts are in the gutter. I need your help. How do you do this? We need to walk alongside people. We need to go and celebrate the good things that are going on. There were a lot of people at the beach yesterday celebrating all kinds of things, I'm sure. We were there for a spiritual purpose. We were thinking heavenly thoughts. And it was a beautiful thing. Now some of you go, I know all this sounds great, but I have spiritual ADD. And I cannot keep focused on spiritual things to save my life. So I'm sure you're talking about the more normative Christian who doesn't have spiritual ADD. I'm not. I'm talking to you as well. All of us feel like that sometimes. Attention deficit disorder. I know I should be doing this over here, but over here I, just, I get thinking about other kinds of things. Don't you have your story of seeing Jesus walking on the water, of looking at Him, of getting out of the boat in faith, of starting to walk and your eyes are lifted up to the Savior? But like Peter, your story has a similar plot, doesn't it? Whoa! What am I doing out here? Those are some stinking high waves and I'm not really supposed to be walking on the water anyways. And as soon as you start to do that, you take your eyes off the Savior, you sunk. You begin to feel the terror of what it is to be outside of a boat that was pretty comfortable and known. And now you're sinking. What do you do when you're sinking? What do you do when you're terrorized by that thought? Hopefully you do what Peter does. You don't go, well, I had my one and only chance. I guess I didn't keep my eyes focused. I guess I'm done. What does Peter do? He looks up and he cries out and Jesus saves him, right? He restores him. He pulls him back. And Peter's okay. That's what we need to do. We don't just say, well, gosh, my thoughts got off of Christ. My thoughts aren't heavenly. I guess they'll never be made pure again. No. You lift your eyes back up. Romans 12:2 it says that we're to be transformed. There's that idea of renewal, of the new self that Paul's talking about. We're to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do you see how important this is in Scripture? Over and over and over, it's there. The mind, our thoughts. You think this is important? I do. Just as every sin is born in the mind and the heart, so the renewal begins in these internal places. That's why Paul says, set your hearts, set your mind on things above. We started uh, a tradition, or I started to, to to try and start a tradition when my son was born. I was at Good Sam Hospital uh, in 1997, and um, the tradition that I be that I thought I would start ended about a half hour later. And here's why: uh, I walked down uh, from from the birthing room, and and uh, we had kind of settled things in, whatever. And I, I wandered down. And I thought, wouldn't it be a neat thing to buy a newspaper on the day your kid's born and save it? You know, like, how cool is that? Gee, Dad, what an awesome idea. So I walked down, and uh, and I went to buy a a newspaper, and um, this guy's picture was on the front. And um, this guy's name is, is Marshall Applewhite, and uh, he's a cult leader and just an all-around creepy guy. And uh, I looked at the paper, and I thought, of all the days, I don't know if I really want this guy's image. Uh, I don't want to freak my kid out. But here's basically what the news story said, that, that 39 cultists from uh, the Everwacky Southern California area um, thought that their suicide would carry them to an asexual level beyond human aboard a spaceship behind the haley Bop comet. Starting to ring a bell now, some of you remember that. And um, And I read that and I thought, hmm, I wonder if this is what Christ means when he says that we're not of this world. I don't think so. Okay, this is what you'd call skewed, <laughs> uh, problematic, and um, let's just get him off the screen. Uh, so this whole idea of lifting our thoughts, of getting our thoughts in the clouds, and of thinking heavenly thoughts and not earthly thoughts, is not a call to be this otherworldly spaceship person that, that that just is no good anymore down here. That's not what the call is. But leave it to religion, leave it to a cult, to take the truth and just begin to morph it and twist it a little bit. Religion is always a parody of the truth. It's Weird Al singing the song instead of the original song. It's Saturday Night Live mocking a, a, a news story or mocking something and it becomes kind of ridiculously funny. But here's why Paul is jumping on this. Religion always leads To death. So Paul sees this as an emergency situation. The Gnostics aren't just tweaking Jesus a little bit. They're leading you to your death. Just like these 39 people who followed this crazy guy to their death. And that's why Paul's jumping all over this. In chapter 2, Paul is nailing religion. Remember what it said, Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Those are the things that religion offers to you and it focuses on the world and it focuses on the body. And curiously enough, you know what it produces? It produces worldly and fleshly followers. When you focus on the world and you focus on trying to tame the body yourself you end up with worldly and fleshly people. That's what religion does. That's why your thoughts don't change if you're trying to do it through religion, if you're trying to do it through an appearance of. I'm just not going to ever think this again. Never works. I'm going to fast from all media for a whole week and that'll get my life straightened out. I shouldn't be watching these kind of movies. Never works. Remember God's part in this? God raised us from the dead. We don't raise ourselves from the dead. So if you start from a place where you're going to do it, if you skip the first sentence I gave you and go right to the second ones, I point my heart and mind to Christ. I point my heart and mind to holiness. How long does it last? It doesn't. I know from personal experience. That's not the way we come about it. God's way focuses not on things of the earth, but on things above. Philippians 3.12, our citizenship is in heaven. Ephesians 1.3, our wealth is in heaven. And then here in Colossians 3.10, our power comes from above. Do you see that? All above. Here's the implication for you and I. You and I are to carry on in our relationships, in our tasks that we have. Yet, everything for the Christian now focuses through this lens of eternity. Or to use my metaphor earlier from the email, it's filtered, Right? It's no longer just the flesh responding to emails. It's no longer the flesh living a life, trying to establish a home, trying to build a business, trying to be a great son or daughter, trying to get your education. It's now one who's focused on it through eternity. We stop thinking and therefore acting as if this world is all that matters. I love the way that Glenn signed off on on an email this week. Here, Here it is. Eye on the Savior and hand on the plow. Glenn Miller. Eye on the Savior, hand on the plow. Some people just get this really screwed up. They become terrible family members to live with once they become a Christian. They ditch their family, and they're always off at Bible study. And people go, why do I want anything to do with this? You're not, you're, you you've become worse of a, of a husband, worse of a son, worse of a, of, a, of a parent. Eye on the Savior, hand to the plow. Love that. Turn your eyes upon Jesus and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim. We sing a song called Sustained. It says, when your light surrounds me, the world goes away. It just goes away. And that's why I love Sunday mornings. I go, man, I need reorientation on a regular basis. Here's the final sentence. Christ is on His throne and one day I'll join Him. Christ is on His throne and one day I'll join Him. Keep Seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Do you know that's where Christ is right now? He's on a throne. This is the means by which you and I can accomplish heavenly mindedness. Christ is on His throne, and we're united with Christ. We're hidden with Christ. Christ is our life. uh, NAS says, uh, well, I'm going to lose it now. Um, when Christ, who is your life, is revealed. We're united with Christ, and He's on a heavenly throne this morning, right now. This whole idea of what is the right hand of God all about. Scripture's chock full of this, but Mark 9, uh, 16 19 says, After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, this is after he rose from the dead. It says he was taken up into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of God. Luke twenty-two sixty-nine. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. Hebrews twelve two. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. It's a place of authority. It's a place of ultimate sovereignty. And that's where He belongs. And that's where He is. Elsewhere, it says that Christ is interceding for us right now on our behalf. I want to invite the band up right now and we're going to move into a time of worship. How could I possibly this morning touch on all of the issues that are going on in your life? All of the counsel that you need, all of your specific relational needs and things that go on are many and varied. And I, as one of the pastors here at this church, will never stop feeding the sheep. Will never stop caring for the sheep. But as I thought about us as a collective family, I thought, you know, we could speak about different issues. We could give some more practical tips. But I think what we need this morning is a bigger view of God. And understanding that right now there is a heavenly being that's on a throne. And if you could just read about what that picture is, it begins to blow your mind. In fact, people in Scripture who see God, they're left Speechless. And when they do try to write it out and say what was revealed to them, they're just at a loss for words. They 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 say, well, it's kind of like this. It's it's like burning metal. It's so hot and bright and it's just it's shiny. And and you get a sense like when you just you can't even describe something. And that's where Jesus is right now. That's who we worship. How would our issues, our problems, change? if you and I are preoccupied with this heavenly reality. If you and I could catch a glimpse this morning for for five seconds of what that really looks like. If this roof just opened up, we would go away changed people. And revelation like that, revelation from God's Word always prompts worship. The song that you're going to hear right now is a song uh, rearranged, but it's a song that this person rearranged. Just called it simply Imagine. The word imagine says this, to form mental images of things not present to the senses. As we lift our eyes in worship this morning, I want you to imagine and I want you to remember who it is that we're thinking on, who it is that we're talking to as we do this morning. And I want you just to listen and absorb these words this morning.